0: No one pronounced Jerusalem's lot dead on the morning of February 6th. No one knew it was. By and large, the town, not knowing it was dead, would go off to their jobs with no inkling of what lay ahead. Welcome to Now Playing's Salem's Lot Retrospective Series.
1: You'll enjoy Mr. Brodo, and He'll enjoy you.
0: Part of the now playing Stephen King movie series. Hosted by Arnie. Sometimes I wonder, you know, why you're so interested in monsters and magic. Stuart. He's nice enough, but a city guy, a bit abrasive, you know? And Jacob. The boy has a mind like yours inquisitive and skeptical. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series and keep coming back as we continue looking at all the Stephen King-based movies. What the hell is all the secrecy about What the hell's going on in this town? These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Don't be scared. Come join us. Today we're discussing *Salem's Lot*, starring David Soul, James Mason, Lawrence Kerwin, Bonnie Bedelia, and directed by Toby Hooper. Hey, familiar faces all around. Well, a couple. This is Arnie puss, the Big Bad Bear, Stuart and Elect,
2: and this is Jacob and all whispered things in your pearly little ear that make your hair stand up. Ooh, let's do that after the review.
1: <laughs> and here we are, back at King. Back at TV. The beginning of our Salem's Lot <laughs> retrospective. Like Carrie, I'm like, Carrie's four installments long, somehow we're eking three out of Salem's Lot. <laughs> and I've already seen two of them.
2: And is this just one book, or did King do follow-ups to this, or are these just all gonna be different remakes or expansions of one of his books?
1: This is one book, plus two short stories that serve as a prologue and an epilogue to that book. Now, What we have is the original TV movie based on King's second novel. This is the second screenplay for King based on his second book. And then they remade this with Rob Lowe after Rob Lowe came back to success with The Stand and The West Wing. But then there is a sequel to the original one made in the 80s, A Return to Salem's Lot, which, much like the Rage Carry 2, is kind of just its own made-up thing.
3: Yeah, you will get to learn very soon that whoever controls the rights will do with it at will. Screw King and his artistic vision. There are lots of sequels that have little to nothing to do with the source material. I know for a fact because I have seen A Return to Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot, though, I want to begin with the book because I've admitted in my youth, I voraciously devoured much of Stephen King's first decade of writing. But I always skipped over Salem's Lot. I feel like this one, it's not neglected. People know it. People love it. I think King has called it one of his favorite books. And yet I don't think it has the respect of Carrie or The Shining or some of these earlier novels.
2: I'm not a huge King fan. I know most of his major works. Never heard of this. I had no idea what I was in for. Oh, wow. This is a book that
1: if you talk to King fans, they say is the vampire novel of the 20th century. I think they might be a little diluted, <laughs> but that is what the King fans, if you read the biographies on King and a lot of the King fan boards, that's what they say. I, too, skipped Salem's Lot, the book, but the reason for that is very defined. When I was heavy into King in high school, I was heavy into King movies, and I was renting all of these at my local video store, and I got to Salem's Lot... And I watched about a half hour and decided it was so freaking boring that I was going to go to sleep rather than watch it. And I don't even think I watched the remake when it came out. My experience with this 1979 Salem's Lot was so poor when I watched it in 1987 that... I never wanted to look at this book, this character or anything. So all of this is a new experience for me here as I reviewed it yesterday at Books and Nachos and now we're watching the movie here today. You know, I read this one too recently. A couple of weeks ago,
3: I tried the audiobook of it. I wanted to catch up. I'm going to try to stay current with King. I really enjoyed what you're doing with Books and Nachos and I'm going to be reading along when time allows for it. But yeah, this is not a memory from childhood. My memory comes strictly from this first movie. I did see it, I think, when it initially aired. Two Saturday nights, I saw the second Saturday night, or at least I only have memories from the second Saturday night, in November 1979, scarred. Scarred for life for one scene, we'll talk about it. I think <laughs> it is the scene from the movie that anyone that saw it remembers, and it stuck with me. But, yeah, I do think you're onto something. I think that Carrie and The Shining are so well-renowned and beloved, apart from how they might read, because they have iconic movie images to go along with it. Here, even when we get to see the vampires and all of that, they crib a lot from other vampire movies, and I just
1: don't think there's that originality to the vision, the way there is with
3: Carrie and The Shining. And
1: keep in mind, this was King's second book, and... It was put out around the time Carrie was being made. They got the rights from King. They paid a little bit more. King had several options on the table for the rights to this, and he wasn't the man then that he is now as far as his bank account goes, and he decided to take the offer that paid a little bit more and gave him absolutely no control over the making and the rights or anything versus other options where he could have written the screenplay and such.
3: Mm, Interesting. And I
1: do know they didn't
3: aim for television. Nobody did in the 70s. If you wanted to make a horror movie specifically, you wanted to put it out in theaters. I know that they tried and had many different drafts for a two hour, two and a half hour real movie instead of a two night TV miniseries. And one of the screenwriters, one of the people that turned in a draft and was rejected, he's the reason why we have the movie we'll talk about next week.
2: So what you're saying, this was originally planned to be a film. This isn't like a going back to Bixby, an Incredible Hulk pilot where they're hoping to spin off a television show.
1: It wasn't planned that way. No. And when King was talking about this right when the rights were initially sold, he honestly thought that either Steven Spielberg or John Borman would be the director. Hmm. Not two names I usually hear in the same sentence, but it was 1976. Sure,
3: yes, and they had made Deliverance and Jaws. There was reasons to think they were suspense guys. Go to. I think a lot of horror people went with it. They got a big horror guy here. Toby Hooper, the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and... Eaten alive. Boy, he needed this movie. I'm going to say that. He had already had his sophomore slump with a retread that had Robert England and a killer crocodile or something at a pick motel. It was really a come down. His follow up to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Toby Hooper probably could have been forgotten if he didn't make Salem's Lot.
1: Yeah, they actually wanted George Romero and he was attached to do it. They were working on it and Toby Hooper and Romero were working together on other projects that didn't quite go as far. But when the studio made the decision that this was going to be a TV movie instead, Romero decided his vision couldn't be fulfilled. He backed out and so it went to his friend Toby and A Warner exec had seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre and decided during that viewing that whoever directed this and he didn't know who it was would be the right choice for Salem's Lot. I don't see why, having watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre and having read Stephen King's book, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, doesn't draw me to this the way it might other King works, like maybe Shining, where it is more suspense and then more gore, but... Yeah, he did desperately need this, and to think, without Salem's Lot, we might never have gotten Poltergeist or Life Force. Yes. (laughs) That would have been half sad, wouldn't it? (laughs) It's funny, it seems like we have directors du jour here at Now Playing, where it's like, are we really going to just one by one get through the entire oeuvre? For a while it was John Carpenter, and now it feels like we are really hitting, especially his early works hard for Toby Hooper.
3: Yeah, we've definitely talked a lot about him. The first two Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Poltergeist. I think we're kind of done. I mean, other than Invaders from Mars, I don't know what else I have to say about the man's work. We're
1: going to get to the Mangler, another Stephen King adaptation.
3: Oh, I didn't realize he was involved with that. Well, that will be special. (laughs) Okay, you're right. Maybe we're on a swing here. Maybe we'll get through everything. The Funhouse next. I don't know, but. You know, this is him early in his career, back when I do think people had pinned a lot of hopes that he could be a major figure in horror. That he was going to take the horror genre out of the drive-ins and the grindhouses and get it to mainstream audience here. Otherwise, why would you give him a TV movie? I mean, TV, there's nothing on his resume that makes you think that he could be restrained and to do things on a television budget with a television mentality of censorship.
1: I think that we forget in this 21st century what TV movies were in, like, the 70s and 80s. Those were big events. They were very profitable events at the time.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I remember Caravan of Courage. (laughs) That was one of the first TV movies I remember sitting down to watch.
3: (laughs) I
1: don't know what that is.
2: It's It's an Ewok film. Oh, Star Wars. okay.
3: <laughs> okay. Well, no, but hold up like Roots. I mean, yeah, that had like 50 million, 70 million people turning into it. The audience was much bigger than the movies. I mean, yes, you're right. You're reaching a large audience. There wasn't many channels on the television. It was huge numbers back then. And even this being on Saturday night, I think of now as being a dead zone for TV viewing. No, this was a big deal. As a kid, I know I saw this when it originally came out. I don't know how much I watched, but I think it was because there were kids in it. You know, I think in my youth, I gravitated towards people my own age, and if they were in a horror movie, I was more likely to watch that horror movie.
1: Yeah, and this was a very big King book. When you look at Carrie, it was his first book, and it was downright anemic compared to what King normally writes. You get to Salem's Lot, his second book, over 400 pages, Dozens and dozens of characters. I was really impressed, and you can hear my full details and Books and Nachos, but I was so impressed with the scope of it, I could see why, based on that length, you might think this could be your next Shogun, your next big TV miniseries, especially with King now being a best-selling author thanks to Carrie.
2: One of the things that always did put me off from his books is just, he does really world build even when, I don't know, I, it doesn't always seem necessary to me. But yeah, I did get that scope here, and I was wondering that. Was this a big book? Because there are a lot of things going on, a lot of characters. You really feel like you're immersed. You know, if you're going to go with the TV film, yeah, immerse us in this town.
1: And they did a lot of streamlining of this book. When I'm watching this movie, having just read the book in my review for Books and Nachos, it is just surprising how many personal stories are gone, how many characters they take two, three, four characters and make them one character in this town. We'll talk about it when we get into this movie, but this town in the book felt like a real town where we were getting to know a good majority of the residents. Here, this does feel like maybe they had 25 extras at most, even the populace scenes seem anemic.
3: Right. I think this is a story that is ensemble, and you're right. The challenge is, I think it was a reason why it didn't get turned into a theatrical film, is how do you encompass the cast and the scope of a small town and remain true to King's vision? Let's see if
1: they did. Arnie, give them the plot. Ben Mears grew up in Salem's Lot, Maine, raised by his aunt, but the town lives in the shadow of the Marsden House, a two-story house that the locals believe is haunted. Many years earlier, The owner was said to have murdered his servant, his wife, and several local children before killing himself in the house. As a young boy, Ben snuck into the house and was convinced he saw the corpse of Marsden hanging, a sight that haunted Ben the rest of his life. Now an adult, Ben works as an author and returns to his boyhood home to write a book on the Marsden house and face his childhood nightmare once and for all. Ben even wants to live in the house while he writes, but the house is under new ownership. Richard Straker and his business partner, Kurt Barlow, have purchased the manse to live in while they retire, opening a small antique shop in the town. So Ben is forced to stay in a local boarding house, and he dates local schoolmarm Susan, who Ben finds reading one of his books in the park. But soon trouble starts. A local boy disappears, and several residents die from a mysterious anemia. Ben's old English teacher, Jason Burke, takes a sick townie home for rest, and in the morning, the man is dead. But that night, the dead man returns as a vampire, wanting to feed on Jason. That's right, Barlow is a vampire, and he's come to town not to suck the residents' money, but their blood. Straker isn't a vampire, but he's rather Barlow's human servant who can do the master's bidding in broad daylight. As every time the vampire feeds a new vampire is created, the vampirism spreads like a plague through the town, and Mears, Burke and Father Callahan are the only adults who believe in the vampires enough to stand up to them. But Callahan is killed by Barlow when he tries to protect teen Mark Petrie. Petrie goes to the Barlow house to confront the vampire, and there he meets Susan, also investigating the two newcomers. But both are captured by Straker, and while Mark escapes, Susan is turned into one of the undead. Finally, Burke and Mears go to the Marsden house, where they shoot and kill Straker. Barlow kills the English teacher... But Ben and Mark finally pull out Barlow's coffin, staking the head vampire. They then set fire, burning the evil Marsden house with a fire that will also spread through and burn the town. But some vampires escape and pursue the two survivors. The man and boy flee to Mexico, where Susan, now a vampire, comes to feed off her still-human lover. But Ben stakes her as well, and he and the boy continue to run from the vampires as credits roll. Now this was a TV movie that aired over two nights, a week apart, two hours a night. It has since been recut multiple times. There's actually four cuts of this film, or mini-series as it were. When it first aired, it aired in a four-hour TV format, which is pretty much what's on the DVD, but the DVD, it runs three hours because it has no commercials, and it has a few more gory scenes than were actually able to be aired on CBS back in the 70s. And so we'll call it, you know, the four-hour TV cut or the three-hour DVD cut. It's still pretty much the same with just a little bit more gore. Where that gore came from is this was theatrically released in the UK. We once again, I guess, shit our television onto
2: big screens overseas. We didn't have to go over to uh, Romania or something this time. The U.K. did it.
1: Yeah, and they cut a full hour out of this, because if this runs a little over three hours when you take out the commercials, the U.K. version ran under two hours, ran about an hour and 50 minutes. This was released in the States on VHS. And I actually went back to Amazon and had a VHS tape shipped to me. I hooked up a VCR. Thank God I still had it left here from Supergirl. (laughs) Of course (laughs) you did. I'm really curious to hear about that cut. I'm imagining we're all
3: going to agree. A 70s TV movie, there's pacing issues with its full run. And maybe a shorter cut could bring some needed clarity.
1: And it's the same stuff. There was only one scene that was completely filmed differently, and it's an innocuous scene that involves Fred Willard that is different in the two versions. But, yeah, if you see the old VHS European version, then (laughs) that is the same as the DVD version, but an hour and ten shorter. And don't forget to adjust your tracking. Yes,
3: I can't imagine how well the VHS released in that time has held up. I mean, it's got to be degraded at this point.
1: It was really painful to watch.
3: Yeah, I wouldn't judge it on its technical merits based on that copy alone.
1: And the fourth cut, I'm not able to find a copy of, but CBS re-aired this miniseries, but they did it in one night in three hours. So they cut about a quarter of it out I didn't see the merit of trying to find a scene-by-scene recut. It was just done for broadcast reasons. But those are the four cuts that are out there. I will compare the European VHS shorter cut to this DVD cut as we go. But I think we can pretty much say that what is out on DVD now is the definitive Salem's
2: Lot, Toby Hooper's vision, as it were. Which one did you guys see? The DVD I got, it was, I believe, three hours, three minutes. Now, when you say there was a four-hour edition, is that including the commercials? That includes the commercials, so... Okay, so I guess I saw the four-hour edition, I'm guessing, if it was down to three hours once the commercials are taken out. That's
3: what it would be, and yeah, that's the version I saw as well.
1: Yeah, that's the only one that's been released on DVD, and so it is the most common version. It's the one I think we should reference most. From the first two hours of the three-hour cut, They cut an hour out of the first two hours. So they cut the first two-thirds in half.
2: So, Arnie, you said you did see the European theatrical cut, though. Yes. Okay, because I am going to be interested in that. I'm approaching this, again, as a TV movie, but as I was watching this, I was trying to figure out how could they cut this down and make it into a more streamlined film. So I'm going to be interested in that viewpoint there.
3: Yes. I'll go ahead and put this out. Pacing is a problem with this. And part of that is that it was made for television. Two nights. It's gonna feel different. It's gonna have a different structure than a single film theatrical sitting would. I think it could have been done. I do think that they're somewhere in between. King's vision is here, but as you pointed out, a lot of the characters are truncated or combined. I'm not sure that enough of it is here to justify having the wide ensemble. I'm betting that the shorter version focuses on Ben and his fight with the vampires. That's the stuff that really holds to. I would say as much as this tries to be our town or a satire or a treatise, on Small Town America, at the end of the day, I feel like our primary functional character has been Mears, the author. It's always the author in Stephen King books. Let me tell you right now, <laughs> his main characters are always people who write. He puts himself in every story that he writes.
2: Yeah, you mentioned with Carrie, you know, he makes the greasers, the bad guys in a lot of his films. He must have been bullied by greasers. I did kind of roll my eyes when I realized the writer is the hero.
1: Yeah, let's get to misery someday. We'll really have
2: a field day, or the dark half. But yes,
1: in so many works, teachers and writers, those are the two professions King has held, and they're the two that he returns to time and again in his fiction. Ben Mears, on the page, I kind of pictured him as a bit of a regular Joe, semi-athletic 70s guy, but I never pictured him as Hutch.
3: (laughs) Yeah, this would have been a big star. David Soul. this was a get, I guess, for television, that he was one half of the popular cop show Starsky and Hutch. I don't know that he's done anything other than Starsky and Hutch. I only know him from that. So to see him here now, it feels, well, kind of small. I do wish we had a different main character. He's not bad, but I don't know. It isn't what I envisioned, and I don't know that he brings a whole lot to the part.
2: And since I never read the book, I didn't have any preconceived notion of who Ben should be. This seemed like a pretty 70s dude, and it's in the 70s, so I was going along with it. I was wondering, what kind of writer is he? At one point, Bonnie Bedelia's reading one of his books, and it had some weird title. and
1: Air Chaser, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I don't know. Is it about fairies or what? I was picturing pixies flying around in the air from that name. Kind of odd. I'm wondering what kind (laughs) of writer this guy is. I I never caught it. This is a long... TV movie. I might have missed it.
1: He's a novelist, and the type of novels he writes are not really well gone into in either the book or this movie. But my problem is does Hutch, and I don't really know his real name, David Soul, you said, does he come off as a literary type to you? A man of words? Like, there's that one scene where he's checking into that boarding house and that nosy old lady who runs the boarding house is asking him, what do you write? And he goes, books. And she goes, have I read any? And, you know, he's kind of a smart ass, but it's a good play on words. Have you read any books? You know, that's the kind of wordplay I would expect an author to engage in. And it just feels leaden coming out of this actor's mouth. And fortunately, they don't try to replicate that kind of snappy, witty dialogue again. He's a bit of a mouth-breathing football jock type to me. I kept... Getting him confused with Flash Gordon from a couple <laughs> years later. Stephen
3: Queen was a big star of the 70s. He kind of looks like the TV equivalent. He looks like a leading man, but he doesn't have the gravitas to get theatrical work. So he's someone I would expect to see on the small screen. A cop show seems perfect for him. Yes, that he is a tortured novelist. Almost nothing about this character seems like a natural fit. And I don't think, again, David Soul does a lot with the part. I think that he shows up, says the lines without laughing, we buy the character as much as it's presented, but I don't think he inhabits the uh, persona of a
1: writer.
2: No. Yeah, if I had a better idea of what kind of writer this guy was supposed to be, I guess I'd be able to make a better judgment. I just, depending on what you write, you could be like Hunter S. Thompson or you could be more reserved. I just, I don't know who this guy is because I never really felt I learned what he was doing except he's coming back to write about this house.
3: I do feel like this is something that got lost. In the novel, there is a lot more to this. You may not know specifics about what he writes, but you do get the sense that he came from this town and things that he wrote kind of didn't sit well with these residents. That in many ways he had written about where he came from and was going to do it again And it was controversial. The people looked at him with suspicion, not only because he had left them, but because of what he had publicized about their
1: business. I actually took it differently. I took it that they thought he was too overt. He had scenes of sex and homosexual sex and prison rape in his books. And they didn't like that material, and they didn't want this coming to their town. They were a very closed town, very insulated And so they didn't want this outsider, even if he had come from them, to come back and start digging up stuff about, yes, this Marsden house, which in the book literally looms so large over the town. And it's described as being up this big hill and visible from every point in the town. and. All I think of is the Psycho House when I think about this house and I'm reading. And so to see this tiny little abode that they threw together for the TV movie, this house is to the book's house as I think David soul is to Ben Mears. <laughs> I don't know. I like the house. I mean, it's clearly a
3: facade. You mentioned Psycho. I was thinking about Psycho a lot. One of the very first shots is of this house at night. They do right by making this the credit sequence. I think it's got an air that's scary. Does it loom over everything in the town? Well, no. I never get a sense of geography in the town at all. I think there's one main strip, and then wherever he rents his flat. But for the most part, this doesn't even really feel like a town. I don't get the layout of it. But the house, I think when we get the shots of people driving up to it, I think there's something creepy about it. I think it's strange. I think it's strange to have a story in which we're supposed to fear vampires, and at the same time, we're going to learn it's a haunted house that has brought other catastrophes onto this town. That really, the vampires are just this year's tragedy, but that it's the house that's the real villain of Salem's Lot.
2: I like this house. It's creepy. I didn't get a sense that it was supposed to loom over the entire town. It was that creepy, haunted house that bad things always happened in. And you know what? Once we get inside the house, I love the look of it. I like the look of the outside. If you're going for a haunted house type thing, I think this house works.
1: Well, it feels
3: like a warm-up to The Shining. I'll just go ahead and say this. The whole idea that it has this long, tortured history of men hanging themselves and killing their wife and children... ...or whatever. That history has repeated itself. It makes the house very intriguing. That it's vampires living there now. I don't know. That just feels a little strange. I mean, what's next? (laughs) Aliens are going to move in there? Uh, Werewolves? I don't know that I needed both. I think that you risk making something feel too diametrically opposed creatively when you have a haunted house and vampires. You get what I'm saying here. I I like the idea of the house more. Maybe my favorite scene in the movie now, watching it as an adult, is late into the movie, Ben is having it out with his old teacher from high school, and they're talking about that house, and he's saying, is it made evil? Does it attract evil people to it? And it's proposed. Well, then what makes you attracted to it? I mean, we get the sense that Ben may be a bad guy because he wants to write
1: about it." And this is something introduced for the teleplay. In the original novel, there's a direct causal link between Marsden, who lived there, and the reason the vampires come there. Marsden was an occultist, and Marsden was writing to this vampire and saying, Hey, why'd you come and stay for a while? So they really had to streamline some of this. Vampires, when this came out in 1979, they were a little bit passé, weren't they? I think this is the same year Love at First Bite came out. Well,
3: that wouldn't make it passé. That was a big hit. And it was also the same year that we had Frank Langella's Dracula by John Badham. I think that they were coming back. There was a Nosferatu remake by Herzog. I think it was happening, or at least they were trying to make it happen, but maybe people weren't ready to see it as more than camp. I mean, it's certainly the vampire was seen as a campy villain at this point. Cliché.
2: So you're saying, okay, so Salem's Lot the book. It's about vampires because I definitely got the Shining vibe off of this. That is not in the book at all. That was just made up for this film?
3: No, no. They definitely, they have this event that Ben in childhood saw a ghost or a vision of one of the killers hanging from a noose. And that is what has stayed in his mind. That is what he thinks about that is why he wants to write about it. And I do feel like he, even in the book, talks about the house drawing evil to it. But it's not the only explanation. As Arnie pointed out, there's causal events. There's a reason given. Whereas in the movie, it's just sort of a weird coincidence. Like, oh, now we're running to vampires. What's next?
1: It seems like a Friday the 13th, the series conceit.
2: And that's what I thought, too. I mean, you get all this talk about, you know, can a house be inherently evil? I'm like, are we going to go explore the haunted forest that they cut the timbers down to build this? Or there's so much talk about this house. And is it evil? Okay, vampires are evil. Of course, they're going to be drawn to an evil house. And maybe there were Frankensteins there last week and swamp monsters there a couple of months before. It comes off as a little arbitrary. I don't know. I guess it's enough to get me to believe vampires will show up because it's an evil house.
1: Yeah, the book was always about vampires and Ben Mears versus the vampires, but really, it was about the town. The vampires are the backdrop for all of the town drama. And the early reviews referred to King's novel as Peyton's place with vampires. So it's kind of funny that the this- Screenwriter is the guy who created Peyton Place.
3: I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's why they settled on him. They went through a lot of screenwriters, and Peyton Place was, you know, in the 50s, 60s, they were popular books and then movies and had been turned into a TV series. It's essentially a nighttime soap about scandals in a small town. If you wanted to tell a story in which the townspeople mattered, you'd let this guy have a crack at it. I'm going to ask, does the town matter here? I feel like in the King work it was populated by lots of people that bring on the tragedy that they befall. Are these people so bad here in Jerusalem's lot? Are they deserving of being annihilated, taken over, co-opted by evil?
1: I completely disagree with that reading of how the book plays. I think there were some evil characters in the town in the book. I think there were some good characters in the town in the book. I think King does a Awesome job of portraying a small town on the page with a variety of people, some of whom may deserve death, some of whom don't, many of whom do have secrets like in real life. I don't agree with your reading of that at all but I do think that the town is completely downplayed here with the reduction of characters and, correspondingly, the reduction of storylines.
2: You know, this, to me, it's about... You you get this small town, and you got adulterers, and you got, you know, these... Kind of shady guys working at the cemetery and this plumber that, I, I, you know, he comes off as kind of abusive. And, you know, you have these people that are kind of just stuck in their lives and have ignored this bigger evil. And so here's the punishment that comes upon him. It seems like everyone knows the reputation of this house. And they've just chosen to ignore it for all these years, and they go on being kind of not great people.
3: Yeah, that was my take on it. It may only be a few storylines, but they're the ones that feel exaggerated, both here in the movie and on the page. I feel like I think about the misdeeds, maybe their little sins, but I think about the problems that people create for themselves more than good deeds. I don't see a lot of positivity and what people do. I see maybe some less evil people getting also punished. I don't see a community spirit. I don't get the feeling that this is a town that rallies together. I feel like self-interested people become victims of their own plot when vampirism is
2: introduced. Yeah, I mean, you even got the cop that harasses all the wrong people in this film. I mean, it's not a great little town.
3: And a coward. He's the one that runs away when they really need a lawman to protect them. Yeah, I feel like everyone
1: is kind of a failure. I definitely get that feeling from these characters in the movie. Now, a lot of this stuff is what is completely excised from the shorter version. Like I said, the first two hours on the DVD release is the first one hour, ten minutes on the shorter version. So a lot of the scenes with the cop, the scenes with the drunks, all spliced down really horribly. A lot of jump cuts, things like that. One scene with the adulterer is recut. The adulterer, by the way, Fred Willard in an early role, dressed like Herb Tarlek from WKRP.
3: Yes, I, I always think of him as comedy. It was weird. I mean, he's not not comedy here. I think he's a shyster. He's the real estate agent. He's the one that sold the vampires the house to take them over. And in the book, I do feel like he pays for that more. But yeah, that they have a comedian here. It, It just makes it feel goofy instead of dark, the way that the story plays out in the book. And
1: his clothes exacerbate that problem.
2: Yes.
3: But then again, it was the 70s.
2: Yeah, I just went, oh, it's the 70s. Of course they dress like that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I think of him as dressing like a car salesman. Flashy, over the top, get your attention, look at me, look at me,
1: look at me. But while in the book, a lot of those storylines did stick out to me. The ones you mentioned, the adultery one is here consolidated. The house salesman was not the adulterer in the book, but the child abuse story is completely gone. We get to see in the extended cut that drunk that the cop tells to keep an eye on Ben, and we don't really see the drunk again in this movie. He has his own storylines. So many characters have storylines in that book. It was truthfully difficult to keep them all straight. Here, it's greatly reduced. The gravedigger is also the mover... (laughs) The house salesman is also the adulterer.
2: I do got to say, if you're going for this, you know, four-hour TV film, great. Do a little world-building. My problem is a lot of these characters, they show up, and that homeless guy who's keeping an eye on Ben, I don't even remember what happened to him in the end. He just kind of seemed to drop out of the movie, and I feel like that happens with many of these characters. They spend so much time at the beginning, and then once the vampires show up, now it's a vampire movie, and where a lot of these characters go away. It does feel like a disconnect. It's a shame, from what you're saying, Arnie, that that shorter cut is so choppy, because I think that is something that could be fixed up with a shorter cut, is streamline a lot of these characters.
3: Well, the hobo actually has the happy ending. Most of these people are made miserable when they're turned into vampires. They lose their loved ones, they feel sick, they fall over and faint, they die. But here, he gets reunited with his ex-wife. The landlady that Ben rents from used to be married to this hobo, and once they become vampires, they get back together. It's a cute story. It's a love story. (laughs) But I agree with you. Yes, I do feel like most of these characters are here to die. That's not true in the story. They have character arcs. They do tell you who they are. They do feel like a community, if not a community that works together. They feel like a unit. And here, I just feel like they're you know, bowling pins, they're going to get knocked down, you meet them early, and then later they're turning white, they're falling over, they're turning each other. The problem becomes geometric, as Ben points out. Once vampirism is introduced by the child, it isn't long before everyone's a vampire or turning their neighbor into a vampire.
1: Now, you said it's a love story. Well, let's talk about that love story with Bonnie Bedelia.
2: This is really the year of Die Hard, isn't it? We had all those Bruce Willis films. Now Bonnie Bedelia's showing back up.
1: (laughs) If only she'd shown up in some of those other Die Hard films.
2: (laughs) (laughs) She was there for two.
1: (laughs) Yeah, out of five. I was shocked to see her name come across in the credits, a rare name that I actually recognized. But, man, I really feel she's done a disservice as Susan in this movie. In the book, I really thought their relationship carried weight, Here, Ben mentions, yeah, my wife's dead, I have some good memories, some bad memories. David recites that line like he's ordering off a menu at Chili's, and I never really get their relationship. The way he even picks her up is awfully weird. You have my book. You don't need to
2: read it. Let's go out. He was really pissed off She's ruining the spine of that book, though. (laughs) That was a
3: ruse, right? Like, she knew that there was an author in town, so she went out, got the book from the library, and was hoping this very thing would happen. It was her plot... To get him interested in her.
1: Was it? Was she just stalking the park for it? In the book it comes off that she was legitimately reading it. And she approaches him. In this movie. I have no clue why she has that book. And it's never mentioned again. It's clear that she hasn't read it prior. Or that she's very interested. It's not a
3: coincidence that she happened to be reading it as he walked by. And he's new in town.
2: I did think it was weird that she happened to have it. I guess I saw it as a coincidence. It seemed like a weird one, perhaps. I guess she did plot it.
3: I took it to be that way. But I don't know. It's a different character, too, because in the book, I felt like she was a character that wanted to escape the town, but hadn't took the risk yet. Whereas here, she's a victim of the 70s economy. She had gone to New York. She had tried her hand at advertising. It didn't pan out, and she's now been reduced to being an elementary school teacher teaching art instead of making art in Salem's Lot. This is a force back to where she didn't want to be. But she's more worldly. You know, I think they wanted to have her have a little bit more feminist edge. She's not so over the moon
2: with Ben. She even gives a little feminist speech at one point, seeing if he's alright with that.
3: Yeah. I, I mean, she's here largely to love the romantic lead. Don't get me wrong. She has little to no other function other than to be someone that the main character cares about and loses, but I do think that as written for the screen... She's a little bit more independent. She is going to go to a job interview in Boston rather than a funeral of a townsperson. She wants out, and she's done it before, and we think that she'll get out again. She feels less trapped in her circumstance.
1: But do you ever really get that these two are, like, wonderfully in love, or that she's even that forward-thinking of a character? You mention all these things, and yeah, these are lines that are said about her. But really, when the vampires start to come, she just is literally left at the house while the men go do their work. At one point, she does decide, for reasons never explained, to go up to the Barlow house. I really do not
3: understand how she comes to accept vampires as easily as it is. I don't even know when it happens, but at some point, he just kind of turns to her and is like, "Hang garlic, there's vampires, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, okay, sure, whatever. I mean, as long as this movie is... The coming to the vampire conclusion seems to happen abruptly, and with no pushback from any of the townspeople. Once it's kind of pointed out that this
1: anemia plague is happening, everyone's like, oh yeah, vampires must be. I read it in this book. And it is, again, better fleshed out in the book here. I kind of took it that... And they talk about it a little bit. Ben has a talk with Jason after the gravedigger turns into a vampire. They figure out he's a vampire. They're like, people are just going to lock us up if we say that. They're going to ruin your teaching career. They're going to say we're all nuts. So they do kind of hide it. But yeah, Susan comes to it too quickly. God help me, in a four-hour cut, is it possible there were scenes that they didn't have room for? (laughs) That would explain some of this? Well, it's three hours with an hour of
3: commercials, so yes, I do think that some of this just didn't get in there, and that is clearer in the novel. I guess if I looked at Salem's Lot, as I did before I read the book, as a story about vampires that take over a town, I would look for that to start earlier, and I would look for there to be more debate and dialogue and rejection and looking for other possible solutions to the problems at hand. I don't know who yelled vampire, but everyone believed
2: it. It's too easy. I do agree. Again, all these characters, but so little character development going on here. Okay, oh, there's vampires? Okay. It's like, what did you do with all that time? I'm watching this, and the pace is slow. It reminds me of a 70s made-for-TV movie. I haven't watched a lot of those, but if I had to imagine what they were paced like, this is how it is. And yet, so little seems to get accomplished until the vampires show up.
1: Yeah, I have to say, looking at this... This was two hours on two nights, aired a week apart. And if I look at what happens in the first half of this three-hour cut, and then the second half, if I'd watch the first half a week later, I'd be like, let's see what's on NBC tonight instead. Because this is dull. The stories that King brings so to life are done so lifelessly with these piss-poor TV character actors That I don't care about any of the characters, I'm having trouble keeping them straight, and the vampire story is entirely marginalized down to a few shots of Straker noticing that Ben is stalking him at his home saying, how you doing, and leaving it at that while he goes about his business of opening the antique store.
3: Yeah, you know what, but I expect that. I mean, two hours, the first one's about introduction. I accepted the movie the first two hours was going to be, let's meet everyone, let's set up the bowling pins, we'll knock them down next week. I actually think the pacing problems get introduced in the first hour of the second night. You know, I was enjoying myself. As pokey and old-fashioned as it was, kind of reminded me of a Hammer horror movie, and I grew up with those. I understand that they don't have the vitality and movement and bloodthirstiness of today's vampire movies, but I kind of like an old-fashioned vampire tale. I was with it for the first hour, but there's nothing really that happens until the last 40 minutes of this movie at all. It is all set up, set up, set up. Meet everyone in the town. Here's the plumber, here's the gravedigger, and they're all dead. I mean, really, they don't have anything else to do other than die. So I ask again, is it a tragedy that we lose an entire town? Is it sad that Salem's lot is wiped out by the end of this? I don't know. I say the vampires can have them. These people really don't pull you in.
1: But then again, I'd be rooting for the vampires if I liked the vampires. I'll say that James Mason does a respectable job as Straker. He doesn't come off overtly evil. He's interrogated by the cop and he has kind of a funny smarmy scene there that I kind of like. And this is an actor I've seen in other stuff. I didn't necessarily remember him, but I look at his credits. There's a lot of them and I check off a few things that I've seen. I thought he did a good job, but let's talk about Master Vampire Barlow. In the book, this is a suave Dracula type vampire, or if you want the George Hamilton love at first bite. He is a human first and foremost. He's seductive. He could get by in the night. Here we have It looks like Nosferatu mated with a rat.
2: Yeah! I love Barlow, this vampire. I love Nosferatu, so maybe that's why I'm going with this look. This blue skin and those, you know, instead of the fangs on the side of the mouth, they're right up front like a bunny with, you know, vampire bunicula. (laughs) I I don't (laughs) I like this creepy vampire look. And, and, you know, we've talked about Lost Boys, and there is that sexual nature of vampires where they're seducing you. I felt like this movie had that where people, they'd kind of go into these few dream states and not really remember what was going on. But I kind of like this horrific-looking master vampire here.
3: You know, Stephen King said when he conceived of Salem's Lot, he was trying to modernize Dracula. I think it's only appropriate that Toby Hooper goes back to the very first filming of Dracula. Nosferatu, by and large, the 1921 Murnau movie, is the first official, actually it wasn't official, they got sued, but this was the first famous incarnation of the Bram Stoker story on screen. And so, yeah, why not bring that look of Max Schreck's, Characterization into this film. Why not go back with that classic look? I think it's effective. You already have James Mason. He's suave enough. We don't need two suave dudes here. I think we needed a
1: monster and we get it with Barlow. I think that this was the right choice. I think it could have been the right choice if the makeup effects were at all convincing.
2: It was the 70s.
1: I don't give a shit when it was. I don't give a shit. What medium it is where you put those fangs in the middle and, yes, make him look like a rabbit.
2: You might have not liked how the fangs looked, but they look like fangs. When you
1: make him an impotent character because he's unable to speak, he only hisses, he's called the master. Let's see some mastery. Okay, Arnie, you're going
3: to regret these words next week when you see what the makeup effects are like for Return to Salem's Lot. I'll leave it at that. We're talking about this movie. I don't think they're bad at all. This was Emmy nominated for makeup effects. I think they hold up. It's worth pointing out, the actor portraying him actually was disfigured. He was missing most of the lower part of his face. He had been severely burned, and they incorporated that with the makeup. So, to me, it looks inhuman, and I think that was the right choice here. He doesn't have lines, so we don't have to worry about his speaking voice and all of that. I I think that the hissing and the vision, I go with it. Nosferatu was a silent movie. This is a silent vampire. I think it's... Very good.
2: Yeah, and maybe because I do like Nosferatu so much, that's why I'm going with this. I like this vision. You know, I like when the other people turn into vampires, especially the Glick kids. I love the way, and I, I'm pretty sure they're using a crane to make them float around in front of these windows in one shot. I'm pretty sure I saw that crane behind them. But I love the way they kind of <laughs> just float around in front of that window and kind of just paw at it. I like the atmosphere. When we get into these vampires, I don't need to see... Dracula or Barlow here giving grand speeches. I want a creepy atmosphere. That's what I enjoy with horror is when I kind of get scared to turn out the lights because it is kind of spooky.
1: I just go back to Fright Night. You know, I see so much of Fright Night in this. I wish we would reviewed this before Fright Night because Lost Boys, Fright Night, I saw it in the book first and foremost. This striker character is totally jerry's goon from fright night and then later on we see somebody impaled on deer antlers taken straight out of this for lost boys no it's not it's taken from texas chainsaw massacre that's a
3: toby hooper flourish leatherface had done something very similar that was completely hooper
1: okay but having researched salem's lot schumacher cites this movie as his influence and Todd Holland cites this movie. They didn't get it from Texas Chainsaw. They got it from here and decided to update it. And so I look at what Jerry did in Fright Night and how he turned monstrous, but he was also clearly in command. I never get the feeling that Barlow is in command. But you talk about these other sub-vampires and Jacob... I mostly agree with you. I may not like Marjorie the vampire who is in the hospital and she disappears in a fade-out effect, but the little boy floating outside the window, tapping on the window, I like it. It's eerie. The kid looks cryptic. I also like the dead gravedigger in the chair there. Look at me, teacher. Yes. I, I like that. Unfortunately, every time they go for a bite and they do the crescendo of music and still frame... And they bite so
2: slowly. The worst is when that grave digger he he's drawn to the Glick boy who's been buried was at the end of the first half of this, and like it goes, yeah, it's that slow motion freeze frame as he goes for the bite. You know, I wish those were a little bit more convincing. I'll agree with you there, Arnie, but. So much of it works for me. But those bites, they don't. Which is unfortunate because this is a vampire movie. Biting's an important thing.
3: The vampire stuff is good. There's not a lot of it is really the problem. The fact that they seem to throw it in anytime they're about to go to commercial to keep you hooked, it feels like a gimmick. But you mentioned those kids and that's the scene. Boy, when I was a kid. The third time that it happens. I mean, yeah, it's bad that poor Danny got bit by his brother twice and he died from it, yeah. But no, the scene that was traumatic was our child star of this film. We have a character named Mark who's really into horror movies and magic and all of that. He was friends with these kids and now that one of them's clawing at his window and saying, let me in, that is, I think, the scene from Salem's Lot. If you ever saw it, that's the one that comes to your mind first when it's mentioned.
1: Yeah, that is a good scene. I do feel like Mark is given a real short shrift in this one. He's even more cut out from the shorter edition, but here, this movie and the book start with him and Ben in Mexico, and so you know he's supposed to be important. In the book, he gets far more exploration. Here, we get to see him doing a school play and hanging out with a couple of his friends who turn into vampires, but he doesn't really interact with Ben or the group until, like, the last ten minutes of the film, and... I think that kind of does him a disservice. In the book, he got a real good kill. He alone took out Straker, and Straker was super powered. Here, Ben and Jason shoot him with a gun a few times, and yeah, that's exactly what happens in Fright Night, but I think it makes Mark a weaker character.
2: And it should be pointed out, Mark, a future writer, that's what he's known for in high school... So we got two writer protagonists in this film.
1: Yeah,
3: I do think that we're supposed to see them. I mean, they have the same haircut. They have the same hairdo. When you first see them in Mexico, I thought it was father and son. You're meant to be fooled by that. And then that we go back two years and they don't know each other, that he has different parents and that they don't interact. It becomes about how are these two going to hook up and wind up in Mexico? That seems to be what you're questioning here. Should it have happened earlier? Yeah, I think so. I think you needed to have all of them kind of working on the same problem by the end of the first night. I think the first night ends with James Mason changing out the sign on the window and saying, opening soon. You needed to have a bigger, I think, hook. At least I did. By the middle of this four-hour, three-hour experience, I really wanted the story to have gotten deeper into the vampires than it had gotten.
1: I just didn't see anything in week one that would make me think I should return for week two. All the good stuff we're talking about is week two stuff, but it's still weak stuff. I don't know. I think that it may be coming a little bit too little too late.
2: I'm really enjoying this vampire stuff. When there's the vampire stuff going on, I'm liking it. It works a lot for me for all the flaws going on, the pacing. When we get to this vampire stuff, even, you know, when we get the cheesy bites and some of them just disappearing to thin air, I'm still going with it. I like this. And, you know, I'm not a big horror person, but this vampire stuff is really working for me.
1: Like and working for me are two strong a phrases that I would use. <laughs> I would say mildly acceptable? I don't know. I think maybe I have the affinity for
3: older vampire stuff, but I think this is fun. Maybe because I saw it in my youth, I'm having some nostalgia to it. I really, I have no beef with the vampire stuff, except that there's not much of it. I think the only thing that plays Goofy is when Barlow kind of knocks the parents' heads together, Three Stooges style, and kills (laughs) them that way. When he comes for the kid at the kitchen table and takes the priest instead, that moment felt a little Pokey. I would have liked to see the parents a little bit more bloodied.
2: I was shocked that that actually killed them. I thought he was just (laughs) knocking them out.
3: Yeah, that was ridiculous. I'll use that word. But by and
1: large, I think just about any scene with fangs pretty much plays and is enjoyable. I'm sorry. Any scene with Barlow, I like Nosferatu. I think it works in black and white silent film. Barlow here. I was rolling my eyes every time. I wish I felt menace off that character. I really do. It would have made a world of difference in my experience of this film. And the other vampires, I like them, but I think there's too few of them. I think the budgetary restrictions and the time restrictions hamper this production massively. I really think they would have been better off cutting a lot of the town stuff and making this the theatrical film it should have been and allowing us to have the gore and the budget that that would entail. Well, maybe we'll get that in the remake. I know nothing about the TNT version. I know we're not
3: getting it next week. But, yeah, I think that there is definitely a way to improve upon the use of the ensemble here. I think that there would have been a way to get the stuff that I'm complimenting more often and more of a sense of the characters. I don't know, the script, it just goes to surface for me. That It mentions things, but doesn't go deep. I wanted to really know more about the house, and him writing that novel. I mean, what do we understand about this serial killer, or, or mobster, or whatever he is, that had all these missing boys that may be pinned to it? I mean, this was coming out right around the time that John Wayne Gacy's crimes were being exposed. I think this would have really played into national fear that some man was taking neighborhood kids and burying them in the basement or whatever he did. I feel like I wanted to see the parallels between what had happened in the past and now that the kids were disappearing in the present. I just wanted to see more connection to that evil house. And really, you have to remind yourself that there was other bad stuff, because they don't flash back to it. It's only a couple lines of dialogue every now and then. You forget Ben is even a writer. I think he only has two scenes in front of a typewriter.
2: Yeah, even Mark, he's, I guess, writing another school play, and he talks about how there's this fire back when it was called Jerusalem's Lod, and it almost got to the house, and then the winds blew, and it turns towards the town, and, you know, that's going to come up at the end here. And, yeah, explore that. What is this mystical power around this house that has preserved it for so long?
1: Yeah, I would have liked to have seen a lot more of that. That was something I felt in the book was left a little bit vague as well. But in this movie... It might as well have been cut altogether. I don't know what having it be a haunted house adds to the story. When the evil isn't the house, the evil is the vampires that occupy it. But was it? I mean, I think,
3: yes, that's what it winds up being. That's not what they told us it was going to be. That it sets up to be more ambitious than it proves to be. Ultimately, this is just Dracula. And like I said, I'm not even sure why Dracula has moved in to this small town. Why Salem's Lot? Is it just because no one will notice? I feel like it becomes a strange target lower in this man's estimation. If he's traveled the world and Europe
2: and been doing this for years, isn't this small potatoes? well, come on, maybe this is a big antique collecting community. And <laughs> I mean, I, I really thought there was going to be some sinister plan behind this antique shop that they're opening. Yes. Did I miss something? They open it, there's this like creepy classical music playing. I'm like creepy that's the De Beers diamond ad music damn it <laughs> but the way it plays with this it kind of it gives it a vibe you know It like something sinister is gonna happen are they you know you pay for your antique and they bite you on the hand turn you into a vampire I don't know <laughs> as far as I recall nothing happens with this shop it's just kind of like this cover to build a mystery did people not know that this was going to be a vampire movie when this originally came out and so this was a way to kind of prolong that mystery of what was going to happen
1: I think in the book they didn't Because in the book, in 1976, it wasn't even printed with King's name on the front. There wasn't a description. You just knew it was a black cover, Salem's Lot, something horror. Go read. So maybe vampires were a bit more of a shock in that case. In this, it's an unformed idea that King would revisit later on. We will, if we live long enough, get to needful things. Is that about killer antiques? It's about an evil guy coming to town and opening a store.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I do feel like this should have been where we learned the evil heart of the town. If indeed the the town is evil, which is my take on it, is that seeing them interact with the store, there's been so much build up to everyone's apparently waiting to meet Barlow and waiting for the shop to open. There's been two signs, one saying, coming soon, and then he changes out and being like, coming real soon. I mean, like, Okay. And now that the shop's open, it's largely forgotten. I don't even understand what it has to do with the rest of the story, other than I suppose it opens at the same time that the crate is open. The timeline's messed up. That's one thing you really feel about this TV movie, is that everything's kind of happening in the spring or summer, whereas in the novel, it seemed to be stretched on for many more months.
1: Yeah, it definitely has a weird timeline going on. It's more so even in the shorter cut, where it's like, Ben and Susan just keep going to the lake (laughs) two (laughs) different times, and one time the salesman is end up dead in the car. It's definitely a strange way for things to happen, and a lot of work to go through to open this antique store, given that the town is overrun with vampires in about three days. The time frame should have been
3: longer. It feels like everything happens so quickly.
2: So what, the antique store would have been a front so they could earn money to buy, I don't know, Straker to get his cereal and milk until they <laughs> eat everyone in six months?
3: I think it might just be antiques because vampires are eternal. They can hold on to this crap and, you know, eventually <laughs> it's worth something. You know, he's been in business since the 40s and obviously he's lived longer than that. So, yeah, I just take it to mean that they can deal in
1: antiques because they're old. So finally, this was something that shocked me in the book. I was fully expecting it in the movie. Susan gets taken in turn, ending their love affair pretty quick. I like the fact that they held out to this to the end, that it actually is the last moment
3: of confronting her. I think that it's a bigger villain. I mean, let's face it. When they go to kill Straker and Barlow, it's kind of easy. I mean, it really doesn't take much to put these guys down. Bullets from a gun and a couple
1: hammers of the stake... And that's it. These supposedly centuries-old badasses are kaput. But they do have casualties along the way. I mean, Jason is killed on the antlers. And Father Callahan, who is a much bigger character in the book, he's taken out and even a cross won't save him from Barlow because he lacks faith. I
3: like that scene. Yeah. His faith against ours, I want that expanded. I'm hoping to see this better next time in the remake. I feel like I want to understand this moment better than 70s TV was ready to tackle.
2: Yeah, I I don't know if they wanted to, you know, say that Christian faith wasn't strong enough to defeat a vampire in the 70s. I don't know how that would have flown.
1: It was, again, in King's original novel. And yeah, something that we see so much now that crosses are not working against vampires or like the Fright Night, you have to have the faith in the cross for it to work. King originated that, to my knowledge. I think that was the first instance. You know, it kind of had an Exorcist vibe to me
3: because that scene when Barlow shows up in the kitchen, there's like an earthquake first and things are flying around. It almost felt like a supernatural paranormal or something like that. And that's the scene where Father Callahan dies. I don't know. I'm hoping when they do this remake, we get more of Father Callahan.
2: Another thing I want to really compliment this film on, you talked about the outside of the house. I love when we finally get inside the house. Susan falls. She sees Mark go in there. He's going to get vengeance for his two friends that died. And I don't know. This house is just creepy. It's a shell of a house inside. I, it's covered. What What is the feathers everywhere? We see lots of taxidermy birds and antlers. And I don't know. It's just, again, I like this creepy vibe. We get in there. Why would a Dracula need a nice house? He's sleeping all the time. And when he's not sleeping, he's out eating people or biting them, at least.
3: I'm going to credit Hooper for this. It did remind me a lot of that creepy atmospheric house from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, all the deer heads, the animal heads, the antlers, all of that stuff. It had a similar vibe, and yet it also had this British hammer horror vampire vibe. I think it it is an excellent mood. You're right. We've been building up to this house. It's a nice moment when Ben pauses on the porch and you remember that he hasn't been there since he was a child that saw a ghost, so this is going to be a big moment here. I like the house. I think this is where you want to have this
1: climax and this showdown i like the inside of the house i agree with you i still think the outside of the house looks just like rundown suburban the house in halloween the house in psycho this has nothing on either of them this house it just doesn't feel when they're outside of it that bad inside i agree i love the dusty atmosphere i love the rundown nature i love the staircase used as a trap
2: And you know what? When all the action finally goes there, there's a great shot that I love. You got Ben, he's staking Barlow, and there's that door. They put the coffin in that little, under the stairs, and you have Mark watching this vampire get staked, and you see two more vampires. You know, at first, it's, I think, the the plumber and the... The guy, the the grave digger, they start crawling out of this under the stairs, you know.
3: It's the fruit cellar. Again, I'm thinking of Psycho, but I think it's where uh, Mother was stored at the end of Psycho. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is.
2: Yeah, and I just love it. it. starts off dark, and if you're not really paying attention, you don't see these two bodies, and then they come out. I don't know. There are some great shots in this film, and that surprised me for a TV movie because they were very effective. And maybe that's because it is Hooper, and he did do Chainsaw, and so he, he had some talent for that kind of stuff.
3: Yeah, I do think you see some talent in evidence. Pacing problems galore, but when we get scary moments, I think they're pretty scary. I think that they're well
1: made. Nothing in this movie even approached fear for me. Nothing in this movie could I classify as scary. But I'll agree with atmospheric and ever so slightly tense. Okay, I think we're all saying the same
3: thing. I just I don't begrudge the movie for being pokey. I think it's kind of charming in a way. But it's easy. I mean, it's really easy to defeat these. And I do feel like the really main bad, by making Susan the last one, I think she is the one that's hardest to beat. Supposedly, Ben's fallen in love with her. He saw his future with her. He was going to go with her, whether she went to Boston or not. So now that we have this epilogue
1: in Mexico... An epilogue entirely cut from the shorter version. Oh, really?
2: Wow.
1: Susan just burns up with the house theoretically in the shorter version. Oh, no, 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 no.
2: That's the wrong way to go. (laughs) I think this means a
3: lot. And come on. I mean, I had a feeling he was going to kill her, but he drove that stake in by hand. No hammer required. He just shoved that thing into her before she bit him. I was impressed with that.
1: I did like this end. This is original to the screenplay, and I thought it was an emotional end. I wish I'd believed in their relationship more. I wish that their romance had meant more to me. But given what I have, I'll take what I can get.
2: Yeah, I do like that they play it like, is he going to embrace her and turn to a vampire? I knew he's going to stake her, but I like that there is that pause there right before he impales her.
3: Right. You know, I don't know. You know, sometimes, Fright Night, we've mentioned that a couple times, we've had the damsel be turned, but we think if they kill the big one, if you get the master, that's going to reverse everything and she'll be fine. That she stays the vampire until the end, and the lead has to kill her. You're right. I didn't care about these two as lovers, but as a finale to their love, I think it's a pretty bitter one. I think it's a great way to end this TV movie. Typically, we think of... TV being comforting, we think of them putting on a
1: glossy, happy ending. This ends on a stunner. Well, let's see if I'm stunned by the recommendations. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Salem's Lot? Jacob.
2: Are there pacing problems in the film? Yes, even even for a 70s film, this thing's got pacing problems. You know, are there character development problems? Yes, I wish there was stronger writing here, I wish there were stronger characters... Are there storytelling problems? Yeah, you know, you build up this mystery about the house and that kind of goes away. There's a lot of loose ends here for a film so long. There's a lot of things that just kind of fade away as they bring in other aspects. But, man, I do like the atmosphere when the the horror elements set in, when the vampires come in, when you get into this house. I really enjoyed that stuff. I would have come back. Arnie, you said you wouldn't come back the next week. I would have come back the next week. There was enough there to pull me in. There there's a whole lot of problems here. I'm going to give it a recommend. It's not a strong recommend. I would love to see this film get done better. There's a lot of opportunities to improve, but there's not a whole lot of subtext. Not a you know, it's not real deep, but I enjoyed this as an atmospheric vampire story. And I want to see it done better. Hopefully we get that in a couple weeks with the remake. But I'm going to give this one a recommend. I do recommend watching this as it was intended, two nights. It is a bit of a chore <laughs> to sit through the whole thing. I will say that. But you know what? It's a shame that that shorter edit, it didn't sound very good, Arnie. It sounds like you cut out a lot of stuff to help make it coherent. It cut out that ending that we like so much. Uh, that's a shame because I think this could be streamlined more, cut down into a better edit for modern audiences. But yeah, I'm going to give this one a weak recommend. Stewart.
3: Oh, you know, Jacob, you and I saw and enjoyed the same movie, but I can't go your way. And it is because it's the three-hour cut. I don't know. I'm I'm not going to say definitively not recommend because I didn't see any other edits, and I do think that it is editing that is holding me back. I feel like if they had recognized that they weren't going to get King's dissection of small-town America and what they really had was just Dracula in, you know, Main Street, USA. If they had Focused on that and gotten rid of the hobo and the landlady and some of these characters that never meant anything. Throw a few of them in. I mean, the kid vampire's good. The grave digger looks scary. I'm not saying make it entirely about Ben, but I do feel like it gets lost. The best parts of this movie get lost in its meandering pace and its two-night spread-out screenplay. It can be fixed in the remake. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think that the TNT one will be better. My expectation is that they can do this stuff now much better 25 years later than they could in 1979. As much as I enjoy this, what I recommend is that you go back to a Christopher Lee Hammer horror movie. Go see one of his Draculas. Appreciate that. And I think you'll have a same experience without the extra 90 minutes of filler stuffed in there. I think that this movie is just ultimately too bloated to quite get a full recommend. It's a mild not recommend, but I am going to weigh in
1: with a red arrow. Wow, after disagreeing with you for most of the film, we finally agree at the end, Stuart, because yeah, I'm going to give this a mild not recommend. And what I recommend is again, King's original story. I think that King did a great job With his story. You can hear my review of Books and Nachos, but I really, really enjoyed this book, and I was saddened that I'd held off on it for so long. But this movie is dull. This movie really is tedious. And I felt like I was in the unenviable position of watching it twice. You ask me which cut's better... The shorter cut's better because it's over sooner. Yeah, it's slightly incoherent, and we care even less about the characters we didn't care that much about in the first place. But, no, I think this suffers from really poor casting. I never like Ben. I never liked Starsky and Hutch. I don't think anyone will ever convince me to like David Soul. I just dislike him from the start, and when he's our main character, he's our protagonist in every way, that's a failure for me. I don't think that Barlow is ever explored enough. He becomes a monster. He becomes a goon instead of the master that he's described to be. I do think there are some good moments here, which is why I give it a week not recommend. But my God, I just can't recommend spending three hours or even two hours on this just for the few good moments it has. I like you, Stuart and pinning all my hopes on Rob Lowe and the remake. I think that this is one of the rare cases. I mean, we got Carrie, and De Palma's is lionized, and it's the definitive Carrie vision. And the shining, Kubrick, is the definitive shining vision, despite what King wants us to believe. Here, I don't necessarily feel like this is the definitive Salem's Lot vision, and I'm hopeful that the remake can do it better. I think this was a good first attempt. It had some good atmosphere. It had some good cinematography. It had a terrible, terrible score.
3: And nominated. Did the world suck back then? <laughs>
2: you just hate 70s aesthetic, I think. <laughs> I love the whole. Yeah, well.
1: It always comes back to Bixby for you. Well, Jacob, Stephen King is pretty much there with you. He enjoyed this mostly faithful adaptation to his book he did have some problems he did not like nosferatu he thought that undermined his character of barlow
2: so he disliked the stuff i liked the most
1: (laughs) but if you flash back to 1979 before the world had seen the shining king had seen the shining and said this was better
3: we'll we'll get there we'll get Mm. there in
2: a few weeks
3: couple weeks And I really think I will be taking Stephen King to task in ways that I have not yet.
1: (laughs) We're going to have to wait, and at the end of our Kubrick the Shining podcast, discuss Kubrick or Toby Hooper, who wins? (laughs) I think it might
3: be really settled when we get to the Mick Garris miniseries the next week, and we see the one that is quote-unquote far superior in King's mind, the sanctioned one.
1: The one starring the guy from Wings.
3: Yeah, that's where I'm really going to challenge King's ability to see the film versions of his work for what they
1: are. But, no, I'm going to give this a red arrow, not recommend. I didn't like it when I watched it as a teen and going back in as an adult. I see why I was put to sleep by it. But would you have watched it every week? I mean, it's worth
3: pointing out the movie was successful enough. There was talk of having, of all people, Robert Block of Psycho turn this into a continuing series in which Ben and Mark go from town to town slaying evil. I don't know that it would work for me because I think they're on the run. They're not out going and finding the evil. They're running away from it. But that was the idea that they wanted to do and for many years it was in development before I guess the actors went and did different things and it just
1: never materialized. Well, speaking of Hulk, I mean Hulk was on the run too. The trouble kind of found him wherever he went. Right. Right. I mean, could this have worked? I think that
3: they could have duplicated some of this. I wasn't so in love with Salem's Lot, the town, to think that what was good about the Ben Mark stuff couldn't work anywhere in Florida and California. Let's face it, it would have been in Los Angeles for most of the series. But yeah, I feel like they could have duplicated the quality
1: of this TV movie into a TV show pretty easily. You know, I'd heard that they were thinking about this. I also heard that that was something they abandoned after the second night of this, because the second night's ratings were far lower than the first.
3: Oh, interesting.
1: King attributes that to the week in between. If they'd been consecutive nights as the stuff he was more involved with, he thinks it would have done better. But could this have worked as a TV series? I think anything could, It all depends on the talent. I wouldn't have wanted to see these actors week after week. I'm curious to see if it can work as a sequel, which was direct-to-video? kind of. That's how I saw it. I don't know. I don't know what it is.
3: Let me put it out there. Bad, bad taste from my single viewing in the 80s. But when I look at the cast list, I'm very intrigued to return to return
1: to Salem's Lot next week. So let us know what you think of Salem's Lot. One green arrow from this group. Is that too harsh? Is that too kind? Come to the forums at nowplayingpodcast.com or Facebook and Twitter and let us know. So that does it for Salem's Lot. We'll be back next week with the return to Salem's Lot. In the meantime, if you want more Now Playing, a reminder that the Child's Play podcasts are out of the vault, our first time ever taking something out of the vault, but only until December 31st, Find all the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. You bet. So, until next time, ciao, Constable. The will
0: burn. It will drive them out of their hiding places.
3: All of them?
2: we will purify salem's life and the others will be on the run and on the hunt for us for us
0: thank you for listening to this episode of now playing and we hope you've enjoyed the show i just don't like things that suck your blood and have conversations afterwards Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews and analysis of the original Stephen King Salem's Lot novel and short stories Jerusalem's Lot and One for the Road from the Night Shift collection.
2: Literature's become elitist. It's like black and white photography.
0: And come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, and join us each week for another new King movie review. You take your mother and anyone else that you could persuade to go. In the archive section of our website, you can also hear reviews of other films such as The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com.
1: Why don't you come up and have a drink one night?
0: To tell you the truth, Richard, the place scares me. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. I used to think nothing happened here, but the truth is everything happens here. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. What would you give for this miserable boy? Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Whoever feeds you is your God. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, T-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more.
1: 95% of our business is done online.
0: You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to now playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com Saints preserves Now Playing's Salem's Lot retrospective series is edited by Heath and Arnie.
1: Don't you guys ever sleep around here? I mean, don't you even get tired?
0: Now Playing credit narration by Brock. What a rude boy talking to his father like that. And in front of company. The Salem's Lot Films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Let it be. Sometimes these badges get in the way. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Would you feel more comfortable if we stepped into the confessional? Now playing is a Vinganza Media Production Copyright 2013. All rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. It's been a gruesome day.
1: Rest in peace. Well, a couple. This is Arnie, puss, the big bad bear. That was a line for the movie? It's a three-hour movie. There's a lot of lines. <laughs> Puss, Big Bad Bear. I, oh, I think I know where it came
2: from.
3: Sometimes that's the game. It's like, where did he extract that? I think I might know the characters.
2: Is the storytelling as strong as it could be? No, there, there's a lot of things. Whoa. Sorry. <laughs> Someone just got their head knocked by a vampire. <laughs>
3: Arnie's throwing him the stuff at the wall in rebuttal. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you bet. Hello. I'm looking for a line.
3: Yeah, I oh, was wondering then, what you're gonna do. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm like, why are you protracting oh. this?
1: Um, got nothing there. I've done all these quotes, but none of them work as a closing line. I never I, I never think to do a closing line. When I'm how lying. do you
2: not think of that at this point?
1: Yes.
3: How you do have you not? to. You have to come up. You have to come up with a beginning and an end. I think you ought to think when. You- I always think of a beginning, but I never think of the end. Yeah. And this one is not quotable. Good evening. You could just do good
1: evening. Yeah, oh, that's pretty bad. Yeah. Do a generic. Blah. <laughs> <laughs> I loved count blah in the old, uh, Greg the Bunny show.
2: You could say, what's, what's, uh, what's goodbye in Italian? Oh, that's understand? actually I'm it. A- that's it. I'm not Italian. That is, <laughs> it. that is it.
1: I actually did write that down and I forgot.
2: Ciao. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.